Happy Friday. Welcome to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks Insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And we are coming to you live from the beautiful Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Day off for the Canucks. They're practicing in Philly. They will, of course, play the Flyers tomorrow. I should say they have already practiced earlier this morning uh, in Philly. They'll play the Flyers tomorrow early, 1 p.m., puck drop. Uh, normal pregame coverage here starting at noon. Batch, though, and former NHL player David Jones will have the call of this one. Of course, Randeep has his Hockey Night Punjabi um, duties, so he'll be back on Monday. But uh, former NHL player David Jones stepping into the booth with Batch for that one. Drance, how's it going, man? Going well, brother. Yeah, um, really interested to see these, this Canucks game over the, over the uh, weekend. This Saturday game against the Philadelphia Flyers, John Tortorella and the Philadelphia yes. Flyers, the one and O Philadelphia yeah. Flyers. We'll all we'll all fold down our Murphy beds and uh, get ready to enjoy some John Tortorella action. Um, Flyers won. Yep, Flyers won their first game. Mackenzie Blackwood failed the Mackenzie Blackwood mm-hmm. make a single save challenge, and and although they got outshot by what. 20, 15, yes, something like that. Outchanced and outcoursed and out, out everything by a significant margin. They still won 5 2, like not a clear victory. Um, you know, I in, I have this I had this premonition on my walk in to the studio today, Jamie, and I, I want to discuss it quickly. All right. Uh, hockey often takes the most illogical possible path to a logical conclusion. And, and when you say hockey, you also mean specifically the Canucks. <laughs> Well, I do. <laughs> they lead the way in that. The, the, the Canucks are an amplifier for this wider rule. And so, you know, what makes sense in terms of this five-game road trip? And, and granted, you know, uh, hockey taking the most illogical path to a logical conclusion, that, that applies to like a 50-game sample yeah, usually, yeah, not yeah, a five-game yeah. sample. But when I think about this road trip, what makes sense for the Canucks over the course well, of this road trip? Something between two and three and three and two. Yeah, I would say like... T- to use one of your expressions, you know, the fat part of the bell curve is what, like four to six points? Right? Four to six oh, points. A ton of, the, a ton of those uh, times on a five-game road trip, you're going to finish between four and six points. Two and three, two, two, and one, three and two. All of those outcomes would make sense. And what would be the po- most logical possible path to get there? Well, for me, and this is also the most Canucks possible path, like the most canucks e path there. It would mean losing in Philadelphia to John Tortorella and the Philadelphia Flyers on Saturday and then winning out against the Wild, the Caps, and and the back-to-back in Columbus, right? And I just, I had this moment where I was like, oh man, what's going to happen is they're going to lose a narrow one in Philly. We're going to come in Monday, the market's going to be panicking, and then they're going to reel off three straight going into the home opener and everyone's going to be so excited and it'll be, you know, totally normal, like a totally what we expected road trip, yeah. just in the most unlikely way possible, which is almost like a microcosm of what we saw from last Canucks season, sort of like a feels like the right sort of vibe start uh, for Bruce Boudreau. Like all of it just made sense to me as I was, you know, drinking my flat white on the way into the studio. I just figured I'd share that. I don't often have premonitions like that, but it just, I was like, this makes so much sense as an outcome that the Canucks would lose on Saturday 
48 hours of panic, mm-hmm. three straight wins leading into the home opener. Like that just, that just, there's something about that that feels right. I'm not, look, I'm not saying you should bet it necessarily, although the Canucks are favored. They are. They are slight favorites. I believe it was minus 115 slight, uh, when I saw it in Philly tomorrow. Slightly favored. So over. basically a pick em, but Oh, it's up to minus 120 now. So there you not go. a lot of respect, though. For the Canucks? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're on the road, they're on the East Coast. It's not, not a, a lot of respect, respect, but yeah, not a lot of respect there. And and I guess I guess the Flyers are like a bit of a public team, but like, come on, minus one twenty, the Flyers are projected to be a bottom five team by most books, by most models, and the Canucks are only favored one twenty, minus one twenty. I don't know. I think that seems very low to me. That seems very low to me. I was expecting them to be, you know, not minus two hundred, but like certainly minus. 150 like I thought I thought is the gap between the Canucks and the Oilers as big as the gap between the Flyers and the Canucks like I would say yes Mm -hmm. the books seem to disagree 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line the smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com I like you staking your claim not just to the results of uh, of the Flyers game tomorrow but also for the remainder of the road trip and the one thing that is absolutely certain about your scenario is that if they lose that game tomorrow yes there is going to be widespread there was widespread panic, panic. I think it was. There was widespread panic after the first game they played, and they played pretty yeah. well. I think uh, it was Chet in Burnaby who described their power play as descending into barbarism. <laughs> that, that will be the, the 650-650 inbox <laughs> if they lose that game tomorrow. Harmon Dial, who will join us at 1230, tweeting that there was a lot mm-hmm. of power play work at Canucks practice in at the Wells Fargo Center today in Philadelphia. No surprise there. Um, again, I remain completely unconcerned, unperturbed by the p- performance of the Canucks power play. Like, I just think it's one of those things that sometimes can take you a little bit to ease into. This group, for me, has earned the benefit of the doubt in that phase of the game. There's not a lot of areas where I give the Canucks a lot of the benefit of the doubt performance-wise. Yeah. But in goal and on the power play, those are two of them. Those are two of them, like... Just like no one in this market's like, well, Thatcher Demko really didn't play well enough in game one. Like, yeah, he, I mean, he lost the goaltending duel to Jack Campbell. You don't want to see that. But, you know, the power play should, for me should be extended the same um, benefit of the doubt. We know Thatcher Demko is going to be great. We know the power play is going to be great. Well, Thatcher Demko is going to be great. You know, he's going to be really good. Goaltenders are a little bit more volatile than anything else. But... I still think the power play is going to be fine. I'm not worried about it. Some practice times, probably exactly what the doctor ordered. Also, what will help? No, no, Connor McDavid. Yeah, Fly- Flyers don't exactly employ a <laughs> that, Connor McDavid or Leon Drysaitel. Yeah, that that'll yeah. help a lot. But um, on the power play, I mean, the thing is, look, every power play is going to have nights where the percentages aren't great, right? Nights where they don't execute crisply. Even the Leafs, even the Oilers are going to have those nights, and for this team specifically. We saw stretches last year where the power play struggled. Then it got really hot. You know it comes in waves. It comes in cycles. So I'm not going to be too concerned unless things start to look really, really bad over an extended stretch for that power play. 650-650 again is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Dalvir V says, Mikheyev looks close to a return. What does that mean for Niels Hoaglander? So just to give you the update from practice, and this is all per... Uh, your colleague Harmon Dial, who will join us in a little bit here. He was at practice in Philly today. Same lines and same pairings as they dressed 
on Wednesday in Edmonton. Uh, so Hoaglander featuring on that Patterson-Kuzmenko line, Mikheyev rotating in, them kind of sharing duties on that spot. Uh, Hoaglander still had his power play two spot. Mikheyev, I believe, was doing some work on the penalty kill. So a little bit tough to read in exactly what's going on there. Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux after practice said that Mikheyev is close uh, and that when the doctors clear him, Boudreau intends to play him, which is no surprise given what the team invested in Mikheyev and uh, and the, the characteristics and the skills that he can bring to the penalty kill. But the question of, okay, well, what happens if Mikheyev goes into the lineup is an interesting one, right? And you didn't see, you know, if it had been Pedersen, uh, Kuzmenko, Mikheyev, and then, you know, Niels Amon, Curtis Lazar, and Niels Hoaglander on the fourth line, that would be one thing, but Hoaglander's still up there. That could be a sign that he would be out of the lineup if Mikheyev draws in, or it could simply be a sign that they're not exactly sure where Mikheyev is going and they don't want to commit too much to having him in the lineup if he's not cleared uh, ahead of tomorrow, Drancer. I mean, this weekend always loomed large for Mikheyev. The fact that he wasn't a regular in practice today would imply to me that we may have to wait until Washington. Mm -hmm. I would expect... There's another game here before we see Mikhaev. He was he was in a full contact jersey, so but it, he again rotating in with with Hoaglander. So not you're on this line, go. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a kind no, of in no, between. But, but Hoaglander went first. Yeah, yeah, that's always a pretty strong indication. Um, you know, the one thing that gives me a little bit of doubt is the power, the penalty kill, right? Like the penalty kill didn't play well. If you're able to get Mikhaev in. And be excited about the fact that, you know, this guy you brought in partly because he's an excellent penalty killer is now in your lineup. You know, that to me would necessitate pushing the button pretty fast, like as quickly as you can. Um, But I would bet I would guess based on the fact that he wasn't a full participant, I would expect narrowly that we see him next week as opposed to this weekend. I know that this game loomed large for him in terms of, you know, being circled on the calendar. Boudreaux saying that he'll be in the moment he's cleared. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I, 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 the fact that he wasn't, the fact that he wasn't first, the fact that he wasn't sort of the mainstay in Hoaglander, the extra, that that seems to be. I mean, that's the best evidence we have to suggest that maybe he's a little bit further away. Maybe Monday is more likely for him. We'll know more, presumably, uh, when the Canucks hit the ice for warmups tomorrow. Yeah, and him working on the penalty kill. I believe Harmon said he was doing so as part of a duo with Vasily Podkolzin, who we didn't so not see, really so not a regular. regular, right? So more just, hey, we've got these guys here, we're doing power play work, you guys sub in as the penalty killers, right? That's kind of how it reads to me. So maybe they won't have to make that decision uh, on who to take out of the lineup until Monday's game and not tomorrow against the Flyers. So looking at this matchup with the Flyers, I mean, look, we all expect Philly to not be very good, and especially, you know, missing Couturier still, uh, obviously not with Ryan Ellis in the lineup. They win their first game, but this still looks very much like there's a reason, even if it's a little bit irrational, right? There's a reason that there's going to be a lot of panic and a lot of upset Canucks fans if they don't win this game tomorrow. Because when you're a team that has expectations of making the playoffs early in the season, you want to see them go out and really make a statement against a team that theoretically, at least, has a lot less talent than you. And if we're just kind of looking at the matchups, you know, for me... You have to make your advantage at center count, right? Edmonton, they've got a really deep center position as well. So that's not necessarily the game where you're going to see it. Philly, 
as I saw the their reporters tweeting their lines at practice today, Philly's going with Kevin Hayes, Morgan Frost, Noah Cates down the middle, right? The entire theory of this Canucks team with Miller, Pedersen, as Horvat is that you have to decisively win matchups like that. You should have a clear-cut, no-doubt-about-it advantage at a premium position, and you got to go out and take care of business that way, right? That, more than anything, there's a lot of things that I'm going to be looking for in that game. We can get into them. We'll talk about them with Harmon as well, but specifically how they win, how they flex their muscles with the advantage they have at center is going to be a big one for me. Yeah, well, and you would expect Hayes Miller, right? Like, yep. we, we did see the Canucks really use Miller as the primary hard match against McDavid. Um, I don't know that that worked great, but I don't know that we can give up on the experiment necessarily based on how Connor McDavid plays, you know? Um, well, it's the same thing with the penalty kill, right? Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? Say, oh, this penalty kill is a disaster again. I don't know, man. It was Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Well, but I think the most interesting first impression we got from Boudreaux in terms of his usage is actually the Neil Zaman piece, mm-hmm. right? The idea that really in terms of who battled top six matchups most for among Canucks centermen, it was Miller one, Niels Oman two, Pedersen three, Horvat four. So that's really interesting because you talk about, you know, guys like Cates and Morgan Frost, guys that Canucks fans haven't heard of, right? Like, let's just be real, right? Like, yeah, a lot and of. And I'm not trying to denigrate them as players no, or anything. Absolutely I'm just not. saying they're not in the tier that the Canucks top three Morgan, are, Morgan Frost, former Windsor Spitfire. Um, I mean, to go all Pierre Maguire on you, right? Like, uh, the Morgan Frost's a f- recent first round pick. He's mm-hmm. fine, whatever. I mean, the, he, could, he could absolutely have a breakout season yep. in, in big usage for Tortorella. Now, if Neil Zaman and JT Miller are battling toughs, sort of what's interesting about the Flyers having far less impressive center depth than the Canucks have is that really puts the onus in some ways on Pedersen and Horvat to make sure that they do damage. Yeah. Right? What was interesting is that, you know, a lot of the Pedersen line's best shifts came against McDavid, came in the very limited amount of ice time that they played toughs. Um, Horvat's line played pretty well, but they need to really make sure that they have a big territorial edge and that they're ultimately producing offense. In some ways, this is like the deployment that we've called for, for Bo Horvat for years and said, oh boy, if this team was ever deep enough to give him, you know, the, the classic Braden Shen offensively calibrated second line center type deployment, man, he'd make hay with it. Um, you know, Ryan Kessler in his Selkie winning season is sort of what I come back to was actually the season in which he had the least defensive responsibility. It was the season <laughs> that they got Manny Malhotra, Malhotra to do right? It. Yeah. And all of a sudden it sort of freed up Kessler and he went absolutely ham on bottom six on the soft underbelly of the opponent's uh, forward depth. That's what the Canucks are going to need, especially if they're able to feed those types of minutes to Neil Zaman. And if they're able to continue to get out of those minutes with, you know, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger eraser, nothing happens during those m- moments, um, you know, roll. Like, if, especially if that holds up, the logic of that holds up and it doesn't burn the Canucks, you know, in some ways, the Miller matchup is going to be the pre- the premier one. And yet the most important one is going to be with the easier sledding, what sort of meal can Pedersen and Horvat make of it? Yeah. And I think the biggest difference, as you said, look, they don't have Connor McDavid. They don't have Leon Dreisaitl. They don't even have that second tier of kind of star player where the coach really has to be on top of it. Oh, no, this guy's out there. I got to get my preferred unit out there, right? Uh-oh, he, we got a bad matchup. Look, obviously, there's certain matchups you're going to prefer. There's certain matchups you're going to want over other ones. 
But there's also no reason you can't get Elias Pettersson a lot of five-on-five ice time, right? If his line is performing like they did in Edmonton, there's really no matchup you have to be scared of. You have to run away from uh, on the flyer. So, yeah, go Miller-Hayes. That's great, and you, and you should trust uh, Miller and Besser and Pearson to to at least hold their own and break even in that matchup. But I also I think it gives the Canucks a lot of freedom to just have confidence to Put, put whatever lines are playing well out there, right? Get Pedersen his minutes. Give him those opportunities. You don't have to worry about, oh, do we really want, you know, Hoaglander, Kuzmenko out, the, out there against McDavid, right? Like, you should be on the front foot dictating what the Flyers do with the talent the Canucks have at forward, right? 100% you should. And that's what I'd expect from Boudreaux, right? Like, you can kind of roll lines in some matchups. Um, you know, I'm sure the Flyers will really be probably choosier about the defensive to forward matchups than the forward matchups. But yeah. but Tortorella is a matchup coach, right? I mean, uh, we talked a little bit about the spiritual affinity in terms of the pressure game between Boudreaux and Tortorella. And yet, you know, I, I think Tortorella is far more likely to both zone and line match than, than Boudreaux is, even if they want to take the same approach to being good defensively, which is to battle in your end of the rink as much as they can. Um, this Flyers team also, you know, they got good goaltending. They won the goaltending battle against New Jersey. That's not been a story of their franchise. Mm-hmm. Although even they, <laughs> Carter Hart played well later, but I think it was the first goal was a stinker, right? Yeah. So even in that, there was a bad goal totally. that he let up, right? Well, and you remember the Flyers were leading the Canucks 2 nothing in this equivalent game last year. It was their second game oh, yeah. of the year at Wells Fargo. And the Flyers were up 2 nothing and looked like they were cruising until there was like a series of... Of bad, really bad goals, goals. on yeah. Carter Hart, including one, I think it was a JT Miller goal from b- below the goal line. So, um, you know, we've seen Hart struggle against the Canucks. That's going to be a big edge for Vancouver. Uh, is Demko in this building ag- against Hart? The Canucks should win this game. Like, I think they're undervalued as a minus 120 favorite, personally. Uh, and yet, my premonition would <laughs> insist that, or would suggest... Uh, and also, look, I still think there's something to not wanting to play a Tortorella team early. I, th- I do think there's something to that. Well, you know, after some tough love in the in training camp and preseason, Torts is saying, oh, we played our asses off last night, and, you know, we played so hard. He's he's juicing the guys up right now. He's in the honeymoon phase early in the season for these guys. Enjoy it for another – enjoy it till American Thanksgiving. <laughs> enjoy it till American Thanksgiving, Philadelphia. Um, look, this is, this is a game the Canucks should win. I – they haven't played well in Philadelphia the last couple of years. The, the last two visits, I don't know if you remember this from the 1920 season, but it was probably their worst performance of the year in that 1920 season. I, I, they, they lost the game by only one goal, but it was like, I think they had 16 shots. Like it was honestly like one of the worst offensive performances this team has put together in years. Um, in 1920, they, they, they won, but didn't play well. Uh, last year, so this has not been a, a building that's particularly friendly to this team in recent seasons to this core group. You'd, you'd expect them. You'd expect them to be able to defeat the Flyers pretty convincingly, and yet, you know, there's enough there. There's enough there that you're sort of side eyeing this one is you know not a trap game, but certainly a bit of a dangerous one, uh, considering you know what should be a, a Vancouver advantage uh, on Saturday afternoon. Uh, unsigned text comes in that uh, Morgan Frost. Was actually a Sioux Greyhound what? in his junior days. Didn't he play he said he for was the a Windsor Spitfire? I'm pretty sure he did play for the Windsor Spitfire. Uh, not too. according to Hockey DB. Really? So there you go. Pierre Maguire would be well, aghast, aghast with you, Drancer. That's why, I which stick... I know really <laughs> weighs heavily wow. on you. That's why I stick to the um, 
Wow, it was a Sioux Greyhound. My bad. That's why I stick to the uh, analytics because I don't I don't have the uh, hockey cards memorized. I'm sure there's somebody else uh, on the fly. Truly, the truly a bad players. Pierre Maguire <laughs> impersonation here. Oof, boy. Uh, 650-650. If, uh, if you know anyone on the Flyers who did play for the Windsor Spitfires, <laughs> let, let us know. And we'll, we'll be sure to include it at some point. Oh, and you know, to the point of just this being a game they should win. And we all know in hockey, that doesn't count. I'm going to sign lot. off here. <laughs> that doesn't count for a lot in hockey, right? Cause it's so random. There's so many games you should win that end up going the other way. But I think for the Canucks, even looking beyond just getting the result, right? First and foremost, this is just kind of a chance to build a case, keep building a case that we should all take this team seriously as playoff contenders. Right. And they started doing that in Edmonton. Couldn't sustain it for 60 minutes. And there's, okay, you can still take some positives from that. Absolutely. But the question for me is just, can you reproduce the first half of what you did in Edmonton, right? And that process and that structure, to use one of the buzzwords for the Canucks, can you reproduce that, do it for a full game? Maybe the bounces don't go your way, right? Maybe there's another special teams letdown or whatever. Carter Hart steals one. But can you just keep showing us that you're capable of playing at that level? Because if you play at that level, right, against an opponent that is much less talented, than the one they saw in Edmonton on Wednesday. You're going to put yourself in a really good position to win, but the thing with this Canucks team has always been, we may see that in flashes, it's been doing it consistently. It's been doing it game in, game out. That's been a problem, right? So, okay, you did it for half, maybe two-thirds of a game on Wednesday. That's cool. Try to do it for a full game against a bad team, right? That If you, if you start stringing those together, then people are going to start taking this a lot more seriously. Well, and I, I do think the Canucks did a really good job last year of winning the games they should have won. Right, it it took special for the most part. There were some, there were some exceptions, some bad ones. I remember the homestand late. I think it was Detroit and Ottawa. They dropped sure. the games too. But yes, yeah, um, for the most part, they started to reel off. Uh, they also the Ducks game. I think about that Ducks game where they oh, got yeah, that routed. Was a tough one. Yeah, that was a brutal. Tough one. Um, but for the most part, I, I felt like they beat the teams they should have beat toward the end of last season. Toward toward sort of the Boudreaux run, and uh, or during the Boudreaux run. So look. If you do that, you're going to be in good shape for the most part in the NHL, right? There's a lot of teams that aren't very good. There's like 12 or 13. So, uh, you know, if they can beat, if they can get off on the right foot there, if they can avoid playing down to their opponent, um, you know, this is not a team that matches up well with them, right? This is not a team with a ton of puck moving um, heft on the back end, right? This is a team that you should be able to. Um, get one over on in terms of Vancouver's forecheck. Like there should be uh, a, a a relatively direct path to two points here for the Canucks on Saturday. But it's hockey. Yeah. But it's hockey. So maybe they lose and then win the last three and come back three and two. I, who knows? We'll see. Yeah. I don't. I don't look at this. Good as, analysis. As, <laughs> good analysis. Morgan Frost, Windsor Spitfires who knows? legend. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> who knows? We'll see. Here's what we'll see. Windsor Spitfires legend yes. Morgan Frost crushing it. But the other thing is, <laughs> you know, I don't oh, see this goodness. as a particularly fast team, right? And you mentioned the puck moving, but even up front, you know, I mean, they're they're dressing Nick Delorier, which throwback to that Anaheim game. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> a problem. That's that. a problem, especially we'll if see. you subscribe to the Mark Spector school of this Canucks team needs more size up front, right? Like the Flyers have a lot of size up front. They have Nick they Delorier. Um, you know, Nick Delorier was on a lo- played in a lot of games that the Canucks lost last year. He did. I yes. mean, it's just true. He did. And, you know, he got traded to the Wild. They beat the the Canucks, uh, Canucks lost to the Wild with Delorier in the lineup. Like, you know, he might have he might have beaten them three times last year. Yep. Something like that. Not as many times as he beat the Windsor Spitfires, though. 
All right. On yeah, that let's note, go to break. On that note, we'll, I, give, we'll give trance time to settle and reset. My goodness. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lover text line. Harmon Dial will join us. Uh, not a former Windsor Spitfire, but he is from The Athletic on location in Philadelphia. We'll talk to Harmon next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650, live from the Kintech Studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we were talking, I won't say what the context was, but we were talking about the Windsor Spitfires in the previous segment, Drancer, and I said coming were up we? next. I don't up, remember that. Coming up next, Harmon Dial, who wasn't a Spitfire. Uh, Nate from Comox immediately texted in with this. He says, you should have gone with... Harmon Dial up next. He wasn't a Windsor, Windsor Spitfire, but he's about to spit some fire. So Nate from Comox, fantastic line. Uh, Very much, good. Much we thought of that ourselves. Much, I was going to say, much quicker on his feet than I am, yeah. than, than the broadcast professional that I am. Uh, and also, <laughs> shout out to Nate, because then he texted back. He said, um, you can use it and, and pawn it off as your own. I'm fine with being a ghostwriter. I'm not going to do that. So Nate, quick on his feet and a, a good, generous guy as well. Ghostwriter, by the way, prominently featuring the Vancouver Canucks. Sure. John Shorthouse's call. You remember the movie with Ewan McGregor? I do. John yeah. Shorthouse, or no, it's Jim Houston's call in that movie when he's there at the go. bar. It's one of the most prominent Hollywood inclusions of the Vancouver Canucks outside of How I Met Your Mother. How really. I Met Your Mother. Yeah. Yes. Um, it all comes full circle. There you go. There, there you go. 650 650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. If you've got any hot one liners for me to use. I, I promise I will credit you. I won't take them and, and leave and, you as the ghostwriter. And keep fact checking me. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know I'm gonna sprinkle in some fake Can we references. We do like here. two truths and a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well one thing I like to do early in the season is I do things I things I think and things I know about right, the Canucks. Right, right, right. So I'll I'll probably do that next week. We can and that that kind of is like it's two similar. truths and a lie. Some similar vibes. Things I on. think Morgan Riley. But yeah, or Morgan Frost. Quite things I think. He played for the Windsor Spitfires. <laughs> <laughs> Things I know. No, he didn't. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> uh, Harmon Dial will join us momentarily here again. He was in, he's in, currently in Philadelphia. He was live at Canucks practice today, where again, they iced the same lineup, same defensive pairings that they used Wednesday against the Oilers. I like that, by the way. I like no reaction to a loss in which you played well. That's the right call. Yeah, especially early in the season, right? Like, yeah. What are you going to do? You're going to hit the panic button because you lost one game on the road? No, you had in your mind's eye how this was going to work. You got to give it a little bit of time. I, I mean, I, I just not a big deal, but I like it. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, well, plus, like, maybe we can have the conversation about the top line. And was that more about being hard match with McDavid? Was there something else going on? But that's really the only line that I think you'd look at and say, oh, maybe you didn't get exactly what you wanted from them, right? I mean, the Pedersen line obviously was really, really good. Really good. Horvat, I know, came under a little bit of fire having a quiet game, but that unit, the trio, I thought played pretty well. They for looked the most good. Part, they right? passed the eye test. Uh, you know, the the underlying numbers weren't sparkling, but they certainly looked good. They looked dangerous. But Horvat had his chances. You know, you play that game five times, but Horvat scores a goal in three of those five games. Like, what, what else can you ask for? Yeah. And. So there's not as if there was one line where you say, oh, boy, you know what? We thought we had something there, but it really didn't look good. Neil Zaman played a whole bunch, right? Even he, That was a guy who kind of surprised his way onto the lineup, and he had a good uh, acquitting of himself yeah. in the first game. So there's not really a lot to justify a changeup, unless Mikheyev is healthy. If Mikheyev is healthy, by the way, 
Would you put Hoaglander on the fourth line? I would. Yeah, me too. I absolutely would. Me I too. would go. I would. I would drop Joshua. And I know, you know, I, I, we had a little bit of this conversation yesterday, and somebody texted in uh, about Nick Delorier. Like, what are you talking about? You're going to drop Dakota Joshua against a Torts coach team featuring Nick Delorier, and my response to that would be, well. Dakota Joshua has to actually do it. It's it's theoretical right now to have for him bringing that element of pushback and 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 snarl and grit. We haven't actually seen it. If you're not going to see it, then it's hard to keep you in the lineup for that reason. That's also why they got Riley Stillman and they have Luke Shen. They do have other guys who are capable of playing that role. And if it's a choice between Dakota Joshua or Niels Hoaglander in your lineup, it's a pretty easy Niels Hoaglander for me. Yeah, for me too. And I actually think uh, Niels Hoaglander, Curtis Lazar line I mean with one of Joshua or, or Amon could be a really interesting sort of like throwback Brian Burke era fourth line for this team like there's a lot that I like about that potential look well and I like not that look I know they think Dakota Joshua has some offensive upside as well and he could still have a really good season for this team in a fourth line role but anytime that you have enough forward depth that you end up with a legitimate scoring threat like Niels Hoaglander a legitimate offensive driver like Niels Hoaglander on your fourth line that's a good place to be right and when you add up you know their top 10 forwards there's going to be somebody who looks if they're all healthy and they're all in the lineup there's going to be somebody that looks a little out of place playing on the fourth line and you can you can look at it and say oh you know well why isn't Tanner Pearson there right drop him down to the fourth line and play Hoaglander in the top nine that's fair but the fact of the matter is it's also Again, somebody who feels like a player who can be a farther up the lineup is going to be on the fourth line, and ultimately that's good. That's what you want. You want to have good players up and down your lineup. It's not a problem to have an offensive guy uh, on the fourth line yeah, necessarily. Look at, Nick, look at Nick Waugh on the fourth line for the Vegas Golden Knights, right? I mean, that's a very good look on them, right? Um, I, I, It's a great look. It's a great look. That, that team's looked very good, and uh, especially their goalie, right? Logan Thompson's looked great. Um, so yeah, I mean, no, I have no problem with Niels Hoaglander on the fourth line. I think that's a way better place for him than Abbotsford personally. Uh, I, you know, if Mikheyev's back, great. I think that's a huge boost for this team, but I wouldn't take Niels Hoaglander out of the lineup at this point. I thought he had a strong game too, in game two or game one, excuse me. Oh boy. Uh, we're trying, <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to track, uh, Harmon Dial down. He's, uh, in the, you know. The far exotic reaches of Philadelphia, <laughs> Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, you know, you can understand why we're having some trouble uh, connecting with Harmon. Very, very difficult to communicate uh, with Philadelphia. But we will try to get Harmon Dial on the lines here as soon as we can to talk a little bit about the Canucks practice today, uh, their first game in Edmonton, and tomorrow's game against the Philadelphia Flyers. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And... Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, and we should mention this, it was announced by the team yesterday, is they're going to be having a ceremony for a former Canuck, Kevin Bieksa, will sign a ceremonial one-day contract, uh, so we won't uh, get into the cap uh, ramifications <laughs> of that one, uh, and he will be retire and be celebrated in the Canucks home game on November 3rd against the Ducks, of course, the only other team, NHL team, that Bieksa played for in his career. So that works out very nicely. This is something that we'd heard from Bieksa, had previously been in the works, didn't work out because of COVID, uh, various other reasons, and now it will officially happen uh, and a chance to celebrate the fan favorite defenseman at Rogers Arena. I hope we get a speech. You got it, right? <laughs> yeah. There I mean, has to be. It's too good. 
It's I too mean, good. You can't waste show. that it's opportunity. Yeah. So you got to I mean, if you're going to have him in the building and celebrating him, yeah, it's just such low hanging fruit. Got to have him cracking wise on the ice pregame. I mean, it's too good. It's too good. Why wouldn't you do it? Um, yeah, no, look, Kevin BX, uh, Kevin BX is certainly one of the top 10 defensemen in this in the history of the franchise by every statistical margin was deeply undervalued as a top pair caliber defenseman in, in his prime seasons. One thing that people really ignore, in my view anyway, is that 2020, uh, 2011, excuse me, 2012 season that he put together, that's truly one of the great individual seasons by a defenseman in Canucks history. Um, again, sort of overlooked because that season ended with a first-round exit. Mm-hmm. was widely seen as disappointing. That team sort of stumbled zombie-like to a second to a president's, president's trophy. trophy. But, it, but it wasn't like an inspiring president's trophy. Like, I truly, I, I mean, I, I know that sounds ridiculous, but fans were up in arms that entire season. That was like the most criticized great team of my lifetime, that, at least in the local market. That was the year they made the Cody Hodgson deal, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I remember that, and it's just, you're right. Cody like, Hodgson's ice time was like a had, constant thing, and I think it was they just, miss Airhoff, and They had raised the standard so high in the previous year that even playing just below that felt like a little bit of uh, a letdown. And as you said, then there's the... Um, the Cody Hodgson trade was super emotional, yeah, right? Right. There's the roster churn. There's the you know a, a prospect getting traded that fans had really become connected to, uh, and for a guy that you know at the time, you know, obviously fans grew to appreciate Zach Cassian to a certain extent, but at the time there was a lot of frustration with, hey, this guy Cody Hodgson's going to put up all these points and this guy's not, and I think all of that really played into that that kind of frustration, and, and it obscured some of the great performances we saw from the Canucks. And, and again, this is one of those things where the year before. You know, Corey Schneider and Luongo won the Jennings. Kessler won the Selkie. Uh, Daniel won the Art Ross, mm-hmm. the Ted Lindsay. Um, like, you know, they should have won the heart. Like, he should have won the heart. Corey Perry snuck in there and, and sort of won one of those um, kind of dubious narrative-based <laughs> ones uh, instead. But, yeah, I mean, you look at BX's season that year, and it's sparkling. Like, it's a remarkable year. He had 35-on-5 points, basically. Over the course of that season, right? Um, he was like just an outrageous player, like played huge minutes for the team, almost 1,400 minutes mm-hmm. in that season. You know, underlying numbers absolutely off the charts, right? Um, 55 plus percent <laughs> shot attempt differential. I mean, honestly, that was a massively undervalued season in Canucks history, I think very much up there with some of the like 50, 60 point seasons you see in terms of his actual value provided to a team that dealt with a lot of back end injuries that just like, he was so good. He was so good. And it makes sense that, um, it makes sense that he, you know, is getting a chance to be celebrated, feted by a market (laughs) that, uh, you know, I honestly think over the course of his time here, he just, I, I do think he was underappreciated in his playing days. And I, I think that's been obscured because of the love that he is garnered as an analyst, right? All of a sudden on hockey night, for example, Kevin Bieksa feels like Vancouver's first like Homer broadcaster. Yeah. You know, it, it it's the first time that Canucks fans watch hockey night in Canada and feel like really represented by a by a broadcaster of that stature in that position. And, you know, I think that's great. But I also think it's obscured the extent to which when he played here, uh, he was often criticized, right? He was a little bit prone to the big gaff. 
Uh, people ignored that he was this like physical defender who also moved the puck really effectively, whose five-on-five scoring rates were always stellar, even if he didn't have the 50-point seasons because well, he wasn't a PP1 and guy. His, when he was partnered with Dan Hamhuis, I mean, that was an elite well, shut-down, tough matchup. And pairing. don't forget, don't forget, four years before their incredible run in 10-11 – Ham Houston Bieksa together. There was also the run that Bieksa had with Willie Mitchell. Like, there's a real argument to be made that Kevin Bieksa has factored in on the two best shutdown pairs in Canucks history. Like, there's a real argument to be made. People will say Olin Sallow or or what have you, but I mean, those two pairings, those two particular Bieksa pairs, are absolutely top five and probably top three in some order. Um, you know, in the history of this franchise. Uh, it's Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. We have successfully connected with Harmon Dial of The Athletic, who's on the road covering this Canucks road trip. Harm, thanks very much for taking some time to chat with us. How's Philadelphia treating you? It's uh, treating me a lot better than Edmonton, I'll tell you that. Anything's <laughs> an upgrade from Alberta. Wow. There you go. Shots fired. So, somebody uh, somebody told us that you were going to come on and spit hot fire, Harmon, and you've, you've lived up to it on the first question, the throwaway question that I lobbed you uh, to start. So that's fantastic. Um, you know, we, we mentioned a little bit about what you reported from Canucks practice day, including uh, some some extra work on the power play from the team. Overall, overall what kind of stood out to you from the from the session today? Yeah, it was interesting for starters. I think Ilya Mikheyev, uh practicing for the first time with uh, with no contact, and I think it uh, in terms of when when they actually started drills, Hoaglander was primarily skating on that line with Pedersen and Kuzmenko, and Mikheyev was kind of rotating um, after Hoaglander. So that suggests to me that Mikheyev is close, but maybe not uh, all the way ready quite yet to play. We'll see. I mean, we spoke to Boudreau after, and he said that he's just waiting for the clearance from doctors. So it's going to be interesting to see whether Mikheyev is, is ready or not. Um, the, the line rushes today would indicate to me that Hoaglander still still looks like he may be in. but um, And if he is, it's going to be a massive sort of game for him to try and prove his value before Mikheyev is, is ready to re-enter the top nine. And then beyond that, kind of like you mentioned, they spent a lot of time working on the power play, primarily the first unit, uh, a bit with the second unit as well. And Boudreaux, after practice again, was kind of just mentioning that they wanted to work on having guys really get to the net and stop in the right spots and, and play a real, really direct style, which kind of lines up pretty well with with last season when whenever the power play would struggle is Boudreaux would continuously try and reemphasize to uh, to not get too cute and and just try and 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 play as direct a style as as possible. Uh, we know that's already the case with power play too. I mean, earlier in Edmonton, I had a chance to ch- uh, to chat with uh, Jack Rathbone, and and he obviously hasn't played yet, played yet, but he's been practicing um, with the second unit. And the second unit in particular, he said, it's just all about. They know they have limited time. Just just fire as many pucks as they can. And and the first unit's approach is obviously. Uh, a lot, uh, a lot different. They they've got a lot more time, so they're going to be more methodical. But uh, even speaking to Miller after the Edmonton game, he said it was interesting that the 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 way that that Edmonton was kind of um, uh, pressing them, they were they were able to like the pass across was too predictable, and so I think they're they need to kind of reestablish maybe that shooting threat with him from from the flank, and so um, clearly they wanted to work on that in practice. Harmon, Canucks players, coaches have been pretty consistent. They were happy with their five-on-five game in Edmonton. How did you rate it overall? I agreed wholeheartedly with with that assessment. I mean, 
it wasn't just that they kind of held their own and that they narrowly outplayed the Oilers, but also considering the matchup scenario. Uh, when the Canucks got up on the lead, the Oilers loaded McDavid and Drysaddle up, and there were a lot of shifts where they were able to catch, um, for example, the Stillman Burroughs pair on the ice. And there were other shifts where they had uh, where they were able to catch the the uh, the fourth line on the ice, and especially when Hughes may- missed a chunk of that time in the second period following that high stick, there were a lot of unfavorable matchups, and for the Canucks to kind of have come out of that, uh, um, come out of that situation, um, winning the five-on-five battle, especially in in in, in Drysaddle and McDavid's minutes, they outshot and outchanced them. I think that uh, I think you take that uh, any day, and obviously the power play let them down. But if you play like that at five and five, you're going to win that win that game seven out of ten times. And what stood out to me with the five and five play was the way that the forwards are able to help a little bit more defensively. I don't know how sustainable that is necessarily, but guys were back checking really hard, with the exception I think of the the Horvat uh, goal where Nurse, Nurse scored shorthanded. I was really impressed with the way. Um, players were coming back. I mean, we saw how, um, for example, there was a rush chance where Pod Colson was racing back and blocked a, a great two-on-one uh, scoring opportunity. I mean, you, you had Brock Besser blocking shots from the point. Um, just guys were really committed, and I think they were able to, especially in zone, because the Oilers still got some looks off the rush, but in zone, I think the Canucks did a, uh, an impressive job keeping the Oilers to the outside, considering how shorthanded they are in terms of missing Mikheyev, who's arguably the, their best defensive winger, and two of their regular, regular back-end pieces in, uh, in Pullman and, uh, or sorry, um, in Myers and uh, Dermott. Harmon, what did you think of the Canucks' defense in that first game? What, additionally, outside of the power play, like what seemed to be the emphasis at practice today, five on five, and was there anything in terms of connecting play uh, from the back out? There were some pretty standard sort of um, breakout drills, and and I think they spent some time doing some five on five shifts, shifts against one another, and definitely I think Boudreaux was trying to emphasize ramping up the the pace I, I think he likes to do, do that a lot and i think they understand that if they need, if they're going to be successful they need to move pucks as quickly as they can up the ice and that was when i look back at the performance against, against edmonton i thought the blue line was all right overall considering how shorthanded they were i mean for instance i, I look at someone like tucker pool and he, he's obviously got a really difficult uh role right now playing in playing in the top four and and still kind of in a situation where he hasn't played a lot because of his head injury and i thought there were ups and downs with uh pullman's game for example uh there were moments where he was able to to stand up stand up at the blue line and break up a mcdavid rush but there were also other situations where um edmonton's top forwards are able to gain the zone pretty easily and, and there was the odd play where where with Pullman, for example, in the offensive zone, it just feels like he needs to simplify his game a little bit. Um, you look at someone like Luke Shen, for example, and I think what Luke Shen does really well is he understands the strengths and weaknesses of, it, of his game, and he doesn't, and he, and he's able to simplify, and he's not trying to, for example, make net front drives um, in the offensive zone. Whereas I think with Pullman. He's such a good skater that I feel like he he feels the need to be involved offensively, but I just don't think he has the puck skills um, to excel in that role. And I think if you were if he just simplifies that part and and learns 
um, to, to really just stay at the point and, and, and focus on, ma- on connecting plays, making simple passes, I think that would help that pair control play a little bit better, especially in the offensive zone. But the blue line as a whole, definitely with Myers and, and Dermot out, is, is definitely a bit of a, a question mark, especially when you don't have Rathbone's puck-moving ability uh, on the third pair. Harmon, what uh, stood out to you most about Andre Kuzmenko's debut NHL performance? Obviously, he gets the goal. What was your uh, overall impression of his game? I was impressed. I, you know, of course, the goal stands out, but I also tried to look for little details in terms of his defensive game because if anything's going to hold him back, it's going to be those little details and, and little habits. And from that perspective, I, I liked. I thought he was pretty polished in terms of the defensive zone getting pucks out and I'm just talking about little plays where for example a defenseman is under pressure and he bumps the puck to Kuzmenko up uh, uh, who's on the defensive wall and he's just able to, to you know make a soft chip and get it out into the neutral zone or 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 he's just able to handle handle the pressure and it's not that he necessarily makes a great play but he's just able able to ensure that the that his line didn't get hemmed in its own end because those are the mistakes if you turn it over making plays from the defensive half wall that really kill um, that really kill your line, kill your, your team's 5-on-5 five five game and have you defending and, and working really hard and getting tired. And I think Kuzmenko was pretty clean in those aspects, and I think that's a, bit, that's a contributing factor to why that Pedersen line uh, essentially spent most of his shifts in the offensive zone. Obviously, Pedersen was the main driver, but I think Kuzmenko ensured that he wasn't a liability in his own end and, and, and ensured that they weren't trapped in the defensive zone. So I like that aspect. I thought there were a couple plays where his playmaking shined a little bit, which he, I think he's excelled more as a shooter and as a, as an, uh, and, and as a trigger man that he necessarily has as someone who's carrying the puck and making plays. But there were some in, interesting moments there. And, and so I, I thought it was overall a pretty good debut. I think there's room for him to look more comfortable on, on the, on the power play. Obviously he scored, but, I think the the first unit, for example, when and this isn't necessarily just about Kuzmenko. I think it's just the first unit as a whole figuring out its chemistry. What I noticed about the Oilers was their penalty kill pushed the top really aggressively. Like they were pressuring Hughes a lot, and when that happens, I would have liked to see the first unit kind of work the puck down low a little bit quicker, just to kind of spread the PK and and have a little bit more time and space to operate with. And I think that logic requires you to use Kuzmenko as a bit of a playmaking threat down low. And and he's he spent a lot of time there in the KHL, so I'm sure he'll figure it out. But I think that's one area where the power play as a whole could maybe stand to learn kind of just how to work with him and control play down low um, in situations like the Edmonton game where they simply decided to, to dash use at the top and try and take away his time and space. You mentioned the really strong performance from Elias Pettersson on Wednesday, Harmon. And, you know, one of the things that I'm very curious to see how this develops early in the season especially is how the Canucks deploy and how they use their big three centers with Miller, Pettersson, and Horvat down the middle. To me, I look at it, and if Pettersson is going to keep having performances like that, I just think they need to find a way to increase his five-on-five minutes and maybe even lean into uh, giving him some tougher matchups as well because if he's going to play like that, they need to find a way to get him on the ice more. Yeah, and I think the shots were shots were maybe five one um, in terms of um, Pedersen against uh, McDavid head to head. So I think he is someone who can excel in that role. I think he's probably their best five and five two a um, centerman right now. 
And I think if you're going to continue using the, the Miller line in a matchup role, which seems to be what Boudreaux is, it's not a hard match, but he, it's definitely the line that they, use mo- uh, that they seem to be using most often against top competition. If they're going to do that, I think they, like one change to maybe consider is if you're insistent on it, and especially because that Miller line didn't look great against Edmonton, you may want to consider perhaps flipping Besser Mikheyev, um in terms of then you can bump Mikheyev up to Miller's line and you add speed, which I think is an important element, right? Because mm. you look at Pearson and Besser as your wingers, that's not a lot of speed if you're going to be defending against uh, top competition, for example, the other night against um, McDavid. And you can there therefore kind of like solidify um, that pace element with Mikheyev, who's a great defensive piece, again, arguably their best defensive winger. And then what I also like about potentially bumping Besser down is he's a high-end finisher. And if you look at, for example, like the one thing you want when Pedersen's going as well as he is and he's making all these plays is it's going to create, like he's going to draw defenders and it's going to create more time and space for his wingers. What you then need is wingers who can finish. And we saw that with, we, we've seen that with Kuzmenko through preseason and training camp. I'm not worried about him, but I think Hoaglander kind of, like he had that one play where Pedersen was able to make a, a gorgeous crossing pass and, and, and it was a great A chance and, and Hoaglander just kind of whiffed on it. So, it, it, and Mikheyev is a below average finisher as well if you look at his overall body of work in Toronto. So it might be useful to have Besser there as a trigger man alongside Pedersen, especially because when you look at that duo's 5-on-5 five five, um, results together in terms of how they control play and, and how they score goals, they're greater than the sum of their parts um, over their time in, in Vancouver as a whole. So that's maybe one thing that was lingering in the, lingering in the back of my mind. Harmon, just want to get your take on Pod Colson and his puck carrying, which was noticeable in the preseason uh, on occasion, particularly when he was, you know, one of the only strong NHL level skaters in the lineup, seemed to carry over in game one. What were your thoughts on what you saw? And did you see progress in terms of maybe being a bit more of a dynamic offensive presence than we might have expected coming into the season? Yeah, definitely. I think Pod Colson's playmaking was one of the underrated bright spots against Edmonton. I mean, there were at least two or three great chances where he was able to set up uh, Hor- Horvat in the slot for great opportunities, the type uh, the types that Horvat usually buries. And I think when you look at Pod Colson's game, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be the type of player who carries the puck through the neutral zone a ton, but what I like, what I, where I think he can be most effective is when he's able to win, win battles. It just seems that off the wall, he's a pretty good playmaker in terms of being able to distribute at east-west and um, and and sort of take the puck from high traffic area and distribute it, distribute it to a, a softer area. That's one thing where where even when you would watch him in the World Juniors, for example, or a little, a little bit of his tape in the KHL, he, he's always had that playmaking um, off the cycle and um, in, in situations where you may not expect there, there to immediately be a great scoring chance. See, he seems to have a knack for finding that soft, uh, soft ice where his, te- where his teammates are, and, and that's where I think he could be a great fit with Horvat because it takes 
playmaking pressure off of his plate, and, and Horvat is a, is an above-average finisher, especially from the slot area. So I think there's a lot of potential with Podkolz and his playmaker on Horvat's line for sure. Harmon, always really appreciate the time. Enjoy uh, the rest of your stay in Philadelphia. Thank, thank goodness it's not Edmonton. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Go eat a cheesesteak, my man. <laughs> Will do. That is Harmon Dial of The Athletic on the road covering the Canucks in Philadelphia. And if you're just joining us, he took the first shot at Edmonton. I was just uh, echoing what he had to say. I've never actually been to Edmonton, so I can't pass judgment on it one way or another. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll continue to look ahead to tomorrow's game against Philly, the rest of the road trip for the Canucks. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, some things we've noticed around the league in the early going of this season as well. Lots more coming up. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Final hour of the week ahead of the Canucks facing the Philadelphia Flyers tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Full coverage here on 650. Pre-game at noon, Batch and former NHL player David Jones on the call with Randeep doing his Hockey Night Punjabi duties. Uh, and then, of course, full post-game coverage as well here on 650. 1 p.m. puck drop. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Uh, before we... Uh... Canuck fan Mark from Edmonton texts in, uh, for your info, it's 20 degrees and sunny here. Hey, that was Harmon, Mark. Take it up with harm, not me. I, as I said, I've never been to Edmonton. Can't comment one way or another. Yeah, no harm, no foul. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You've got basketball on the brain. <laughs> uh, I don't. That's not true. <laughs> Anyways. Can't um, do it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I deserve that one. I deserve that drop. Before we uh, look, we want to talk about some around the league stuff, a little bit more about the Canucks and the the matchup with the Flyers, uh, the rest of the road trip, early season stuff, all that. You can get your thoughts in and your questions in 650-650. I did want to mention this. Uh, it comes from our Sportsnet colleague, uh, who you heard on the program earlier this week, Jeff Merrick, tweeting out a few minutes ago, Rachel Dory, who was dismissed from the Canucks shortly after head coach Bruce Boudreau announced she was joining his staff, has retained Vancouver labor lawyer Peter Gall. And of course... A lot of what we said when the Rachel Dory story first transpired still applies, which is basically that there's not many details and there's not that much to say. That's still kind of the case. It's not having said that, given the, as as Merrick points out, the kind of odd timing, the extreme lack of details, I can't say that I'm particularly surprised uh, to hear that lawyers are getting involved in the matter. Well, the the interesting part here is Gaul's deeply connected with the hockey community yes. in this city, connections with various previous Canucks general managers and Canucks ownership. So this is definitely a heavyweight name um, that Rachel Dory has um, retained here. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll have and hear more uh, to say in the days ahead. Yeah, and I guess the only thing, you know, Look, it's been a long time since I practiced law or anything like that. The only thing I will say is that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be this kind of high drama, messy public fight, right? Like, oftentimes, employment matters. 
can be pretty mundane. They're very serious to the parties involved because there's money and there's dollars and all of that. But it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I see a lot of instant reaction like, oh, my goodness, another kind of giant story that's going to engulf the Canucks. The mere fact of hiring a lawyer does not in and of itself indicate that to me. And that's all I would say. If you're uh, if you're expecting to go in that direction, it could. It certainly could. I don't want to say that there's no chance of that. But again, just because a lawyer's involved doesn't necessarily mean it's going to become that. But we wanted to relay that again coming from our colleague Jeff Merrick just a few minutes ago. As further developments come up, we will get them to you as well. Uh, again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. If you have thoughts and questions about anything going on with the team right now but Trance, I know that um there were some there's some around the league early storylines that you wanted to uh check in on right well, now well one thing I wanted to talk about was the Rangers because everyone knows that I've been fading the Rangers for about everyone knows if you've been listening to this program you mm-hmm. know that I've been fading the Rangers for much of the past 12 months uh, that stance is being tested pretty significantly as they complete uh, their demolition of another elite team, uh, which they did last night, uh, beating a Minnesota Wild team that I expect a lot from this season. The Rangers weren't just the victor in that game as a result of like Igor Shosturkin played well and their power mm. play was good. Like they crushed them again. So they've now crushed at five on five, been the clearly better team against both the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Minnesota Wild. And so the Rangers are now very much on my, oh boy. There might be something real there going on watch list. And I'd compared the Rangers glow up against Tampa Bay to the Vancouver Canucks. And one thing you'll one thing I've learned is um you know who listens to a lot of podcasts? NHL scouts. All sometimes right. sometimes All I'll right. hear from my scouting contacts because they spend a lot of time on the road in the car. And so they're they're often listening. And I got some feedback about me sort of my analogy that the Canucks were kind of like uh, Rangers West. And their point was the Rangers have potential to level up far more quickly than Vancouver because if you consider Adam Fox and Quinn Hughes a bit of a wash, right, there's no one in the Canucks system that has, like, the chance to be as special as a K. Andre Miller, right? There's no one in the Canucks system on the level as a prospect of a Braden Schneider yep. or a Zach Jones, right? I mean, you really have to get down to, like, the Rangers' fifth defense prospect before you'd probably find a name that the Rangers would – even consider trading straight up for Vancouver's top defense prospect, Jack Rathbone, right? Like you, you'd really have to get down to the the types of names that Canucks fans don't even know, <laughs> like literally haven't heard of. And so that was their point was that the Rangers have this level of untapped upside that they could hit uh, this season. If some of those young defenders who, you know, look pretty legit uh, hit and, and become, you know, more than they were last season, particularly at five on five, looks like that's happening. Scary, scary thought for the league, uh, considering the depth of young talent on that team. Well, you just go down the list of the young players, right, that they have. Alexi Lafreniere, Capo Caco, and that's a, that's a forward. But then, as you saw, talk about on the back end, right, Ke'Andre Miller is 22. Zachary Jones is 21. Braden Schneider is 21. Ryan Lindgren's, Lindgren's only 24. Well, Adam and, Fox is 24, and if, right? And, and if Adam Lindgren, who, like, never gets brought up in these discussions, right? If he was a Vancouver Canucks defender... Yeah, people would be over the moon. He'd probably be the second... second. He'd be in the conversation for their second best defenseman, right? Like, you know, I'm not saying he would be, but he would certainly be in that conversation. We'd be debating it. And he's got a team-friendly contract, and he's 24. Like, you know, so that was their point to me, was that that analogy kind of falls apart when you look at the caliber of young defenders that the New York Rangers have amassed over the years. Yeah, and again, for me, it's not just 
it, the defense is obviously the starkest contrast with uh, how the Canucks are built. But if you're just talking, looking at the Rangers and wondering how can they kind of be more than just a a Shesterkin team, a team that relies on an incredible goaltender to win. It's they have so many different young players in the lineup up front and on the blue line who have high ceilings, who have those, that potential to take uh, a step forward. And if a lot of them do it, if a bunch of them do it all of a sudden, and they're complimenting Artemi Panarin and and Mike Zabinajad and Chris Kreider, all of a sudden that team could look really, really scary. They've definitely looked really scary in the first week and I was sleeping on them and I'm not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. Uh, Until further notice, I'm, uh, I'm eyeing the Rangers with uh, extreme trepidation. That That's a team that could be a real problem for the Eastern Conference. Interesting matchup tonight against Winnipeg, um, a team that I'm still very, very skeptical of. And I know there's a lot of high hopes in Winnipeg and from Jets fans that Rick Bonus will fix a lot of their defensive woes. Now it's, you know, second game of a road back-to-back for the Rangers, so it might not be kind of a true test. But the well, way they've looked one. so far, it's still a really tough one. And, Winnipeg's and, first game. And you cross a border. Right, like it's always a tough one when you cross a border. Uh, plus, you know, you have to fly outside of Winnipeg, no airport. <laughs> no, uh, very seriously though, uh, road back to backs are tough, particularly when you have to clear customs. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the Winnipeg Jets have the personnel that they should be able to be at least an average, if not better, defensive team. I mean, Hellebuck's good, right? They've got a lot of defensemen who have experience. You know, Logan Stanley's become a pretty good defensive player, in my opinion. Um, and he's like, what, their sixth, their fifth guy? There's a lot of, like, veteran experience, guys I actually have a lot of time for back mm-hmm. there, including, you know, local kid Brendan Dillon, who's a really effective defensive player. Um, you know, Shifley and Pierre-Luc Dubois down the middle, uh, Adam Lowry. Like, you have those three centermen, you have a, a defense core that should be at least average, and you have a really good goaltender. You should be able to prevent goals. Especially with Rick Bonus as your coach, one would think, one would think that team should at least be able to be average defensively. At least, at least they have to be that this year. I, I'd expect. I, I see them very much as being in that same class as Vancouver, as LA. Although LA is off to a tough start, mm-hmm. um, my LA fade looking better than my New York Rangers fade to this point. Um, you know, I, I think they're still in that mix of teams that, hey, if things bounce their way, oh, you could see it. And and certainly they have the the backbone of a team that could be good defensively. Ottawa. I want to talk Ottawa. All right, let's do it. That's another team I've been fading mm-hmm. big time. Um, I kind of think that that team has those, like, late Benning era Canucks team vibes. All right. Right? Like, it feels like their fans are really excited. They want to raise a banner for having won the offseason. And yet you look at that group and it's like – you know, the forward group's good. It's fine. You know, I mean, it's average, at least. There's some young talent that maybe it could hit, but there's a lot of hope bets. They were widely celebrated for taking on Debrinket, but Debrinket's got a $9 million QO. Like, there's also a lot of hidden risk in that deal that sort of explains why Chicago made it. Yeah. And, you know, they've got Travis Hamannick in the top four. So... You know, I think there's an awful lot of reasons to look at that Ottawa team and be pretty skeptical that they can, you know, compete with the likes of Boston, the Florida teams, and Toronto in that division. You know, much less a team like Detroit that I expect to be far better this year. Not not to mention Buffalo, who I expect to be far better. The I still have trouble kind of seeing which of the teams in the East is going to fall out of the playoff race. Like, I don't I don't think Detroit's necessarily ready to be there, right? 
I don't think Ottawa is ready to be there. I don't know that Buffalo is ready to be there. They all might be better, but I don't know that they're going to be so much better that they Columbus. they threaten Columbus. I'd put in that same bracket. They're, they're they, better, but are they going to be able to close that gap? They threaten one of the established teams in the conference. Well, New Jersey's the one that I expect. Like New Jersey's the one that I think should be good enough to be a playoff team. Like I do expect them to be able to offseat somebody. Somebody I think is going to be worse than the New Jersey Devils. I just don't know who. Yeah, and I know the Capitals are a popular pick. Yeah, um, I could see that. Yeah, I, and that and, wouldn't shock me. End of window team, right? But I they they looked pretty good against the Maple Leafs. Maple Leafs were playing a back to back, so take it with a grain of salt. But I thought they looked pretty good last night. You know, I, I liked their top nine a fair bit. Um, I liked their defensive play a fair bit. Like I, I liked Faravari. Uh, I I think Dmitry Orlov is massively underrated. Like there's a lot to like for me uh, about what I'm seeing out of the Capitals, but they're an end of window team, you know, a older group. So you never know that can, that can fall yep. off in a hurry with, with little warning. Um, you know, we'll see like Tampa Bay's an end of window team. Potentially. I don't expect them to fall off, but I, I can see them dropping from the contender tier, but not to the out of the play. Yeah. I, I you know what I mean? Agree. There's just too like, much know-how, but there's also so many miles, so many miles on that team, like recent miles. It, put it this way. If Tampa Bay had a one-year fallout of the playoffs, I'd expect them to be right back. You know, well, like, I'm not writing off the Tampa Bay team writ large so much as I'm saying, eh, you know, you could understand if it catches up to them, the Pilat. fact that they've played 70 games more than Plus, everyone else. Plus, you know, they lost Pilat. They lost Ryan McDonough. Those guys have played huge roles for them. They've been really important. It's not, you can't just paper that over because you're the Tampa Bay Lightning. They've played an extra season more than every other team over the last three years. You know, like, that. Like you have to think about it that way. 25 plus 25 plus 25. Yeah. Right. Relative to most teams in the league, they've played a fourth season in three years. I mean, it's extremely rare. We just don't see teams garner that type of mileage over this concentrated a stretch, uh, particularly considering how late their first cup were happened. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Relative to, you know, it's not even like three years. It's more like 30 months. They played four seasons in 30 months. I mean, we've just never seen it. Like it's it's really hard to fathom. Uh, how much hockey that team has played. So, anyway, I, you're right. The gap between the playoff teams and the non-playoff teams in the East is so wide. It was that it's so massive I, last year. Like, huge last year. A chasm. Yeah. It was over <laughs> by January. It was like, okay, we know who the playoff teams are going to be in the East. Yeah, it was over before that in the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I, you know what? That might be a bridge too far for anyone. I think if anyone can do it, it's the Devils. That's That remains yes. my pick. I'm not changing my view on that because they got goalied. Uh, by a John Tortorella team in the early going. Um, but yeah, it's going to be very tough for anyone to upset the apple cart in the East. And that's sort of what makes the West pretty fascinating. Dallas looking good last night. Mm -hmm. Very good. Mason Marchment looking like a star. Yeah, like a I, star. I think one of the early... Uh, I picked the Canucks to make the playoffs, right? So that's beating out enough of LA, Dallas, Nashville, Winnipeg in that kind of mix. Dallas and Nashville maybe worry me i know it's early right we're talking about a very very small sample size but they maybe worry me a little bit more in that mix than they did a couple weeks ago like i mm. i can see both of those teams being really really tough outs this year just the way they're structured the combination you know you look at dallas with the high-end talent that they have and again i still have questions about the roster but the new coach you get a little boost from that i think Again, not that I'm, you know, immediately flipping two days into the season and saying, oh, the Canucks are going to miss the playoffs because of this. But that's going to be a really ferocious fight for those final couple of the, the two wild card spots in the West is going to be an absolute dogfight. Straight up anchorman alleyway brawl, yeah. right? Uh, Dallas, Vancouver, Seattle, 
Seattle's showing up like late. They're the they're the, they're like the non-real station, you know, when the other stations start to <laughs> yeah. show up, right? They're one of those, but hey, they they've looked really good through two games. They've looked faster. They've added a lot of forward depth and and a lot of speed up front. Um I'm still a little skeptical about their back end speed, but with decent goaltending, Seattle, you know, I mean, talk about a team that could level up quickly. We're, we know Shane Wright's going to look different game 40 than he does today. We know Beneers is going to look different game 40 than he does today. And Beneers looks really good today. He looks really good. That's the so, thing with that, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I've seen basically what I expected out of Anaheim, and I think that's problematic, you know, in terms of those easy points in the Pacific just not being there, right? And meanwhile, we've seen what we expected, too, out of Chicago and Arizona. Yeah, well, that's, you know? that's the other thing I wanted to get to here. And Tyler texts in. Uh, again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. He says, who is a team closer to NHL quality, the Arizona Coyotes or the Windsor Spitfires? <laughs> Which is a nice callback to earlier, but that's... No, it's not. That's, <laughs> no, I have Let's no move idea. Let's move past I it. I have no idea what that's a reference to. No, you got to <laughs> embrace it. you got to embrace it. I did answer. for one segment. <laughs> uh, that's obviously going to be one of the bizarro storylines in the NHL this year, right? This is the big tank year, the biggest tank year we've seen since... The Connor McDavid year, probably, right? With two teams, not just bad, but aggressively and all but explicitly, they are going to do everything they absolutely can uh, to to maximize their odds at landing Connor Bedard. And, you know, I know we were talking about this a little bit off air, right? Because there's the other teams like Philly and, you know, Montreal. Can they force their way into that I'm, conversation? I'm, I'm out on Montreal as a real tank contender. I think Arizona is going to run away with it. <laughs> I, I think, really do. I think you're sleeping on Chicago a little bit. The only thing with Chicago is they still have not that the like Jonathan Tay is not a world beater anymore or whatever, but he's still a guy who wants to win games. For, he's a real hockey player who wants to win for games. For now. Right? Like they're yes. not gonna have him all year. Yes. The, and, but my my question would be, do they <laughs> does he help them accrue enough points to widen the gap between them and Arizona before they inevitably trade him? No, I think they're gonna trade them if they if that's what if that's how it's going, if it's like Patrick Kane is single-handedly one eight of ten for the Blackhawks. They're going to deal him. They're going to just expedite the timeline, retain and find a third team to wash the money through. Yeah. Now, now, what's interesting is Arizona might not help them do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Arizona's the other team that could do it. <laughs> um, but you know, Montreal I thought was impressive enough for me against the Maple Leafs, and and not not the result. I don't care about the result. Every time Montreal was on the ice, I, I was like, oh, that guy's a real NHL player. Oh, that guy's a real NHL player. Like, every line had at least a couple of guys that I thought, hey, that guy could be good this year. Hey, that you know, oh, Mike Hoffman, right? They have Mike Hoffman. Like, Mike Hoffman's dangerous on the power play. Uh, they, there's just, like, too many echoes of real talent in Montreal. And Marty St. Louis has that team well-drilled, playing well, uh, being effective. Uh, he did it immediately upon being hired last year. Yeah. At the very least, you know that team's going to play hard for a coach who seems to have tapped into something. I think there's some. I think there's enough in Montreal that they're going to have a tough time sinking to the bottom. And as you said, the, the talent is different, and I think just the overall organizational posture is different, right? Yeah. Maybe Kent Hughes would, in the back of his mind, love for the bottom to fall out and for them to have a chance at Connor Bedard. I'm sure that's that thought has occurred to him, but they are not all in. You know, totally cynically doing whatever they that whatever they can to lose games. As you said, they hire Marty San Louis. He's not into that. They have guys like Cole Caulfield, Nick Suzuki, who can make plays, and even in games where they don't play particularly well, right? They can still find a way to win, like they did against the Leafs. So it's just when you're 
to really, really excel in the tank battle. You got to be top to bottom aligned losing games. Well, the ultimate tank battle standard was set during that Jack Eichel, Connor McDavid season yes. by the Buffalo Sabres and the Arizona Coyotes. The Arizona Coyotes. And we got to a point where, like, the Arizona Coyotes starting goaltender got hurt. And then, like, the very next day, the Buffalo Sabres traded Michael Neuverth, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it was like they were literally one-upping each other. I wonder if we could get there with those Central Division cellar dwellers. Like, I wonder if we could get to, like, Chickering has been yes. dealt to Florida. And then Patrick, Patrick Kane, Kane has been dealt to L.A. Like, you know, I, I really wonder if we could see dueling headlines as those teams truly, truly engage in a Kursk-like tank battle. To the ball. And that, of course, that season with Buffalo and Arizona, of course, had the infamous game where they played in Buffalo and the the Sabres fans were just going nuts cheering for a Coyotes win, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was, I think it might have even been in the shootout and they were like actively cheering and booing the opposite results. You know what? If there's one emotional favorite in this market that we should have for an Eastern team to upset the apple cart, I think it's Buffalo. First of all, first of all, they're similarly cursed. Do we, do we want local guy Connor Bedard though to go to Buffalo? Well, no, 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 no. Not sorry, not to win the tank battle, to upset the apple cart in the Eastern Conference oh, okay, playoff okay, picture. Okay. Because first of all, they're probably not going to do it. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, they're Vancouver's similarly cursed expansion cousins, right? Probably the only team that's got a more painful Stanley Cup final loss mm. um, on the books than than Vancouver's. I, I mean, the Brett Hall yep. skate kick. You know, that was tough for a team that's never won. Um, they're also kind of like quietly the other Canadian market in terms oh, of the terms level of, passion, of involvement. Absolutely. Oh, it's it's unreal. Yeah. Like the fact that they were actively cheering for a Coyotes win in their own building. Like, who does that? That's such a good. That's such good spirit. Like, I just that's so funny. Uh, so anyway, I would love to see Buffalo restored to something approximating you know, a, a healthy market environment, which they really have not had in the last 12 months. Uh, Cody the Escort says, I see the Canucks in the Connor Bedard sweepstakes. This is not a good team. Way too much talent. I would, I, I look, I get it. You're down because they lost a game. There's questions on the back end. I completely understand that. Go look at what Arizona is icing this year. Like, just go look. And, like, how many forwards you would have to go down. Like, how many forwards in Arizona's top 12 would, cuck, would, uh, would, would crack the Canucks, right? Like, it's... It's a tough list to go down. Uh, so, uh, look, even if we even if you were a fan who wants Connor Bedard to end up in Vancouver, other teams have put themselves so far ahead in the battle. You have to be new. You have to be a, you have to be new to Canucks fandom to think this franchise is lucky enough. For that. <laughs> That's you know, like in Vancouver, we're just not that lucky. Just is what it is, yeah. especially because this team's not going to get into that mix. You know what I mean? You'd have yeah. to finish like right at the level and then have your long odds. Pay you would off. have to be, I think you'd have to be tenth worst in the okay. NHL. So and then and then have that's the, plausible. It's you know, I wouldn't bet unlikely. On it, but it's, I, yeah. I think it would take I think it would take a pretty significant injury. Yeah. But it's you know, like we've seen teams like the Canucks have that kind of year sure. before. I'm not betting on it, certainly, but it's you know, it's something that could happen. But, but yes, then, but then you need, you like need the five percent odds or then something. Then for the first time ever, the Canucks get some luck at the draft lottery. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll believe that when I see it. We're just not that lucky here. It's okay. Uh, producer Dom says, but they're due. <laughs> <laughs> Gambler's fallacy. Purpose, Let's go. Purposely to annoy Drance. <laughs> yeah, that does annoy me, right? <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well uh, done. Uh, we will uh, <laughs> we'll take a break right now. Keep getting your texts and thoughts in. Uh, we'll get back into the Canucks-specific conversation ahead of their game tomorrow against Philly uh, and the final three games on their road trip next week as well. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Thank you. 
final segment of Canucks Talk for today and for the week. Happy Friday afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's going to be another stunningly beautiful summer October weekend here in Vancouver. So I hope everyone gets out, has some fun over the weekend. <laughs> De- deeply disconcerting. Yeah, but but but, uh, but awfully fun. I'm of two minds of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> let's put it that way, Drancer, without going into it more. Let's um let's let's quickly talk about what we want to see tomorrow from the Canucks. All right. Like what what are you hoping for in terms of you know, I, I'm not of the mind that it's a bounce back performance after the loss in Edmonton. You know, comebacks are far more common these days in the NHL mm. than they were five, six years ago, even. Right? Especially like, when you have Connor McDavid. Yeah. Well, and yeah. but even even 15 years ago, you know, two nothings, the worst lead in hockey. Now it's like four nothings, the worst lead in hockey. Like there's just so much more offense. There's so much more space. The game's so much more free flowing. Players are so much better. Save percentage is down again for the first time, you know, since basically the butterfly was introduced in the mid-90s. I, I wonder how much of that is a coaching willingness willingness as well to just kind of like, hey, you have these guys who can skate on the blue line. You're down? Let them go for it, right? Like a willingness to just adjust your tactics to a more extreme degree well, when I, you're down. I think a lot. And, you know, you can't water ski on the back of guys. Like, it's mm. just a different game. It's just a totally different game in my view. And, you know, I think as a result, Blowing a three nothing lead feels really bad. It's it's just far more common than we want to think. Like the, the last couple of years, we see we've seen record number of comebacks in the league every year. Every year we see it. We're gonna see it again this year. I'd bet. I'd bet. Especially based on what we've seen already. Yeah. Over the course of the first like four days of the regular season. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not viewing this as a bounce back performance. But nonetheless, I'm curious oh, yeah. to hear from the from our listeners at the 650 650 Dunbar Lumber text line, there you go. and also from you. What do you want to see? Well, the the way I was kind of framing this in my head before the show was like, what's the low hanging fruit that you can improve from Wednesday's game, right? Like, what are the things where you look at and say, okay, that should be better, and we should see it against a team like Philadelphia. And the number one thing, obviously, is the power play, right? And you and I have both been consistent. We don't have major concerns about the power play. It, you know, if they happen to go 0 for 4 or something again, I'm not going to be coming in in a panic uh, about the power play on Monday. But, yeah, okay, they executed poorly. I would like to see them turn that around and execute really crisply, right? The the earlier you can get that unit going, you can get it firing in all cylinders, you can get everyone feeling good and confident in their roles, the better it's going to be for this team's playoff chances. So more than anything, I just want to see, you know, the crisp puck movement, the quick puck movement movement and a little bit more of the execution that we saw when they were at their best last season, right? Maybe it doesn't result in a goal, but I, I do want to see it just look a lot more smooth and more fluid, you know, fewer uh, po- passes to the point where no one's there from JT Miller <laughs> would be nice. You know, a willingness that, Oh, Hey, they took away the Bo Horvat slot. Let's try something else. And instead of, uh, as I said, passing it back to the point where no one is there, but that's number one for me is just look like the power play that we all think it should look like. Right? Yeah. One wrinkle, by the way, we saw in the first game. That's part of the reason I'm, I'm, not too concerned is I, I thought we saw while we saw Elias Pettersson take some of those one timers something he has to do by the way whether it's a, a high percentage play or not because of the gravity it yep. creates right you, you need that shot to be respected if you're going to open up the Bo Horvat shot my problem with that is not because we get people saying well, why does he shoot it it's a one percent shot or whatever which it's not but anyways but definitely not it's not that he shoots it too much I do sometimes find passes on one earlier in the power play that would have been a better shooting opportunity and then takes the less dangerous one later in the power play. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just 
and and hey, like that happens. You know, you don't you're not able to perfectly compute in real time every time what the shooting percentage is going to be on that shot when you unleash it, but maybe just a little bit more of a refined selection, right? Like, hey, this one's right in my wheelhouse. The goalie is moving. I'm uncorking it right here rather than stopping the puck and serving. Now, having said that, I also know that the, you know, when the one-timer pass goes over there and everyone starts to commit that way and the goalie is sliding over there in a hurry, sometimes the against the grain pass to the back door can be really effective too. So I understand why he does that well, as well. Yeah, and... I mean, I think the thing I liked, though, about Pedersen's game on the power play in particular was it looked to me like he took some opportunities to actually attack into the interior mm. from there. He had one chance, a jam play uh, early on. We haven't seen a lot of that, but, uh, you know, I think there's opportunities that can open up, particularly if the down low player, Kuzmenko in this case, uh, reacts and rotates to it. If it becomes something that's sticky or if, like, you know, Bo Horvat goes to the net front, Kuzmenko swings out, you got Pedersen at the um, at the bumper spot, and then you also have, you know, as a result of that rotation, Kuzmenko and Miller, two of this team's best passers mm -hmm. on their downhill sides where you can really move the puck fast side to side. I think there's cool options that can open up if Pedersen's consistently aggressive attacking. I thought he looked to do it a little bit. I'd like to see more of that. I think you're right, being judicious about his shot selection's key, but I also think there's more opportunities for him to attack. I thought we saw sort of the start of that in game one. It was one bright spot and an otherwise miserable night on the power That's play That's something that even when the power play was having success last year, and certainly when it wasn't having success early in the season, I love his one-timer threat. And I agree that it needs to be part of the arsenal, right, to create that gravity, to really put the fear into teams. But he's also just such a creative player. He's a really good passer. He's a really smart player, right? So give him a little bit more time with his puck on the, with the puck on his stick. I know you have Quinn Hughes, who's a great quarterback. Miller likes to run things. He's really good at it. But just the more options you can integrate. And I, I don't want to just reduce Elias Pettersson to a decoy or a one-timer threat. No. Because he has more to his game. He does. And if they start to integrate that, I think that's really positive for them in the long term. The other thing that I'm curious to see is how they use and how they can the other four guys continue to adjust to having Andre Kuzmenko there and some of the different things that he can bring to the table with mm -hmm. the playmaking below the goal line. Because I think there's a lot of upside and a lot of potential there, but it's different. It's not how they used Brock Besser in that spot. He brings a different uh, a set of skills, so how quickly can they kind of accommodate that and build it into their their normal arsenal? Well, and, and in particular, how quickly can Bo Horvat figure out where Kuzmenko wants him and where Kuzmenko can find him, right? Because you, you'd imagine that Bo Horvat's pretty used to getting those passes from Besser, who sort of... Um, was doing a Toffoli impersonation and ultimately, I think, uh, exceeding what Toffoli was in that spot toward the end of last season. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, it is a bit of a change. It, it is for sure a bit of a change, and that's sort of the area. The the quick pass from Miller down low, back up to Horvat for that, you know, bread and butter shot, right? Like, <laughs> that is the main, the primary threat on the Canucks power play. That shot in particular they need to find it. They didn't find it in Edmonton. I, I think that's sort of where the Kuzmenko adjustment is sharpest and most urgent for this team if they're going to get their five-on-four play back on track. I want to see vintage Demko. Yeah. I want to see vintage and, and, look, and, and, and again, that's the, similar to the power play where it's no one's – oh, no, what's wrong with Demko? No, that's no, no, not, not like that. But you still want to see it. Uh, want to see it early in the season. It's fun. I like seeing vintage Demko. It's fun. <laughs> you know, when this team gets up 3 nothing. like one thing, you know, comebacks are more and more prominent, and yet, you know, you had that sense when he absolutely robbed Pugliarvi in the first, and it was like, oh, right, 
when when a team goes down early and Thatcher Demko's a net, that's miserable mm-hmm. for your opponent. Edmonton managed to overcome that, but you know, I I, I just want to see that aura. I just want to see that aura because I enjoy watching it. I enjoy watching Demko perform. He's an exceptional goaltender. Uh, I just want to see vintage Demko. That would make for a fun Saturday afternoon on my couch. Yeah, it sure would. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. What do you most want to see in the Canucks matchup with the Flyers tomorrow afternoon? This one comes in. I want to see them be ready for one-time shots. I don't think it was necessarily that they were unready most of the time. They just didn't go well once they got the one-timers in Edmonton. It'd be nice to see JT Miller hit the net there, but I have full confidence that that will come. Yeah. I don't know if it was a readiness issue, though. You know what I mean? No, it's a random distribution issue. Like that, you know, the guys who whiffed on Kuzmenko's best feeds are 30 goal guys. It's not, you know, there's nothing to that. Like, that's a black swan event for it to happen three times in quick succession from players as good as Bo Horvat, JT Miller, and Elias Pettersson. I promise you, you're not going to see that again probably this season, right? Canucks could probably play 400 games without that outcome ever happening again. That's how unlikely it was. I'm not worried about it, but I but I like the answer. I like the response because yeah, I mean that was just just odd, just odd, just a weird thing that happened. It was really bizarre. Oh, yeah, the other night. Uh, this one does vintage Demko mean the defensive play being worse than it already was for oh, the boy. second half of Game One? I oh, mean that boy. is you know uh, the I, ultimate expression of. Vintage I don't know Demko. that their defensive play was that bad. To be honest with you, uh, you go look at the shot locations, you go look at the chances surrendered. I don't know that the Edmonton Oilers were putting the Canucks under an outrageous amount of duress, five on five. My, my far bigger issue was what the Canucks were generating once the Oilers settled down and started to contain Vancouver's pressure game. I guess that's sort of the other thing I want to see. I want to see the Canucks do a lot of the stuff they managed to do to frustrate the Edmonton Oilers in the first 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. I want to see them bring that again because that is another like bit of chaos that I find quite entertaining. I want to see them do that again, but I want to see them sustain it if the game is close, right? Unless the situation sort of dictates easing off. So you mean on the forecheck specifically? I, I, well, I mean on the forecheck, but it's more than that. It's the way that they were drawing penalties. It's the way that sure. they were sort of in their face and, and kind of not backing down. It was a mentality that had the Oilers looking churlish for much of the first 40 minutes. I want to see them bring that again, and I want to see them bring that again for 60 minutes or for as long as it's necessary until you, you know, back off a little bit and just nurse a lead. Well, I always think, too, against the team, you know, the teams that – there's some teams that are very, very confident in their level of toughness, and they just, this is who we are, we're tough. If people, you know, get a little chippy with us, we know how we're going to handle it. There's also teams that are, like, obsessed with proving how tough they are, right? You Remember when the the Rangers went out and traded for Ryan Reeves because they were so worried about Tom Wilson? And I always think with a team that is so consciously trying to prove that they're tough – that's a really easy way to get under their skin, right? You can bait them into doing stupid things. For sure. And a, a team that John Tortorella has just took over, that is icing Nick Delorier because they signed him in the offseason, they're probably in a certain mentality of, but you're we're going to prove how tough we are. The problem is you're not getting Delorier off his game, right? Delorier, yeah. Delorier doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. He's the last playable apex predator enforcer in the league other than Reese, right? I mean, there's two guys. There's basically two guys. Uh, and then there's you know a few other guys like Tom Wilson who are sort of a different breed of player because of uh, how skilled they are. But I mean, you know, there's just not a lot of Nick Delorius. Nick Delorius has nothing to prove to anybody. He is the toughest guy on every sheet he steps on, unless Ryan Reeves is on it. And even then, maybe maybe it's Delorius. So um, you know, 
I, I see what you're saying, though. There's definitely going to be some guys but who are it, trying to prove it a point have to, to You don't have coach. to target Delorier, right? It's the no. other. I, I more mean the fact that they prioritized acquiring him, right? Illustrates the mentality of the team and For the organization, sure. which is that it's like, hey, guys, go show how tough you are out there. That, that can be a dangerous spot to be. That can backfire sometimes. Well, and it can work for you, but you do need the power play to be cashing in, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Canucks baited the Oilers into a lot of penalties. They got under their skin. It worked for them, and then they didn't get the goals they needed, and the Oilers, in fact, got the shorty that tied the game. So, you know, you're, I, I see what you're saying. I agree with you. That jerk puck element can be a big pathway for this team to, to rack up, collect, accumulate points, but they need to also be you know executing when they get the chance to make it stand up uh chet and burnaby texan i want to see them physically challenged by a torts team and respond back maybe see torts and bruce yell at each other that's from chet and burnaby oh that'd be great that would be fantastic theater fantastic oh, sign me up for that uh this one unsigned says i want to see joshua and stillman actually do the sandpaper thing they were brought in to do how does nobody touch nurse or kane in that edmonton game and yeah, I mean, we touched on that a little bit, right, with Joshua's place in the lineup not necessarily being secure, and it's it's been largely theoretical, uh, as the texture says, on those sandpaper things so far. It is such a fine line, though, between – because early in that game – Especially against the Oilers. Yeah, and early in that game, the Canucks were the one provoking the Oilers into a silly response, mm -hmm. right? That's great. That's exactly what you want to do. You don't want to let yourself all of a sudden flip and become – the team that's being provoked, the team that gets more distracted by sending a message uh, rather than trying to beat the other team. It's a, I think it's a very, very fine line. When Evander Kane, or sorry, when Darnell Nurse takes a bad penalty on Kyle Burrows at the end of the first period, you don't want to nullify the power play by responding. Yeah, you know, you have to, you have to pick your spots. You have to pick your spots. The Canucks brought in some guys who are expert level at it. Curtis Lazar, chief among them, right? Um, you have to pick your spots. The Flyers, though, are, are a team where you probably want to push back a little more than you do against the Edmonton Oilers because, you, you know, you're not nearly as scared of seeing their first power play no. unit climb over the wall. No, you certainly You know, it just, it, it just is what it is. Um, here's another thing I want to see. I want to see the Canucks just occasionally, just, just you know, for, for fun here and there, for funsies. I want to see them attack as a five-man unit a little bit. Like, I really do want to see their defense more involved in the attack, particularly at five-on-five. Five. That. I, yeah, that was on my list, but I also, in thinking about it, it's like, who's going to do it, though? Quinn Hughes. At the okay. very least, I want to see Quinn Hughes have more of those moments where he finds a guy in the you know mid-slot. Um, I, I, I just want to see more from the defense in terms of activating, in terms of, uh, in terms of threatening. I know, I know without Myers, it's a, a little bit um, more absent, but there's still guys who can help support a bit more. I, I thought that... You know, not only not only did was it basically absent, but when we did see it, it wasn't effective. It was poor shot selection or low percentage plays or, um, you know, a, a, a foray around the opponent's net that kind of got poked off a defense defender stick. And I just want to see a little bit more like hockey IQ demonstrated in supporting the attack and taking that fourth man's ice. I guess the other guy, obviously, is OEL, that just overall, not even this specific game, but you don't, want to see more of the offensive. You're giving them that out where it's like, you know, the the kid that's not that bright who it's like, yeah, but you're doing so well in shop. Like, stop it. I still want to see it. No, but it's my... <laughs> but you got to be reasonable setting your expectations, too, right? I'm not expecting Luke Shen to all of a sudden be giving this big, so long big boost as on So offense. long as you're giving it your all, that's all we want. That's all we want. You no, said he is, I like, grading on a curve. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, but I'll grade on a curve after the fact. What I want to see, I want to see the team support the attack from the back end uh, with a little bit more efficacy than they did. Number one on that list, it has to be OEL, though, right? Because Quinn Hughes is going to do it. For sure. He's going to do it. And it just... If you're being realistic, I'm not saying give him a pass, but being realistic, who are the other guys that are capable of doing it at a high level? It's it's oh yeah. Like I think a reasonable baseline should be like four to five scoring chances that the Canucks defenders contribute to creating at five on five. Four or five. All I'm right. not I'm not like I'm that. not saying fifteen. You know, I'm not looking for them to be the Colorado Avalanche. I'm not looking for them to be the Florida Panthers. I think that is grading on a curve. I expect Quinn Hughes, Oliver Ekman, Larson, and the other defensemen to be able to contribute to a small handful of scoring chances at five on five. That's it. That is very reasonable. That is reasonable. I can can get down with that one. Um, Man. You were a tough grader yesterday, and now you're giving now you're giving head pats. Well, no, it's <laughs> you, you tried. Know what you, you tried have in players, you got to know what you have in players, right? If you're you're setting your expectations sky high, you're going to be let down. Anyway, oh, sky high. <laughs> more than one, more than one Luke Shen shot. That's a scoring chance. That's no, what I want. Four and a half, four, four to five. I can get. I okay, can, uh, I four can to five. That. That's we're, what I want. I just want a right. small handful. Um, the other thing we mentioned this. <laughs> By the way, uh, Tyler Texan, I want to see at least three Michigans attempted just to provoke John Tortorella, which is a, a delightful answer. Uh, hey, if, if Hoaglander wants to give that, that, be, give that spark. Okay, that would be so good. It would be really good. Uh, now now that's what I want. You've convinced me. That's that's the winning text in. I wish we had a prize for you. That's great. I just want to see the 60 minutes of the forecheck as well, right? Because I think there's a lot of vulnerability to that style in, in this Philadelphia team, oh, right? so and, much. You know, how much did we talk about it? last season with the difference between the Canucks playing fast teams and big teams. You know what I mean? There's a lot of bigger players on this Philly team. So yeah, you can be worried. Oh, how are the Canucks going to physically respond? But we've also seen them be able to take advantage of those styles of teams. You, you also saw some of the vulnerabilities to speed on Wednesday, right? So if that's going to play, if if you're going to keep having those vulnerabilities to speed, you got to be able to take advantage of the bigger, slower teams, right? So let's show that that's, continuing over this I, year too. I definitely take this Canucks team against a bigger team every day of the week as opposed to against a faster team just with how they're constructed and how they play and the way that they can you know uh, take hits to make plays um, up and down the lineup right I mean small or not a lot of these guys uh, to their credit like one thing I would not say about any of the players on this Canucks team is that they're going to shy away from contact to make a play uh, for all that you know um, you know, uh, others might describe them Spectre as having soft skill. Um, you know, I-, I think they, for the most part, like to a man, Garland, Hoaglander, Pedersen, like these guys go to the net with discipline. Generally speaking, they don't compete other, other players. Hughes battles. Right? Oh, Hughes battles. And Hughes wins a lot of puck battles against bigger players by being sharper than them with his feet, with his positioning, by getting in on guys' hands and stealing the puck, lifting the stick. Like, there's a lot of the, you know, the, you, you, I, you'd be hard-pressed to name a Canucks forward for sure, for to me, that I would say, yeah, that guy shies away. Like, I just don't think any of them do. And so I would always take this team against uh, a bigger opponent um, far, far before I'd take them against a faster opponent and that's just because of how this team can struggle to break out, right? It's it's finding that plan B, which has so often been an issue and was an issue in game one, particularly when the uh, rubber met the road in the third period. Gurjeet texts in, what I want to see is another Torts locker room visit. Imagine oh Torts versus Bruce on pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I actually don't want to see that. No, I'm going to be honest with that's you. That's not good for the sport. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah. It, like it's not. 
it's come on. No, it's it's, it's disgraceful. I agree yeah. with you. Uh, New West Jess Texan. I want to see Bo, Bo score or at least throw the body around. Something a captain would do, says New West Jess. Yeah, Bo, cool. Bo, Bo Horvat coming in for a fair bit of criticism. Oh boy. Oh man. That's a. It's almost like he's not signed, and fans want him to for very cheap. They want him to for very cheap, or they want the Canucks to get a massive, massive haul. Yeah, I mean, look, that's those are the two options. Right? The, the the fact is, he's not in the fairest position at the moment, right? And uh, you know, would you like to see more on that uh, on that third goal for sure, for sure? But I don't think Bo Horvat had nearly the the type of game that it feels like this market has spent forty eight hours talking about. You know, I, I just don't understand. I, I honestly don't understand. I'm honestly wondering if I watched the same game as everyone else because I saw Bo get a lot of chances, right? I saw Bo's line be pretty effective. Um, I saw one back check where perhaps you could have looked at it and said, eh, you want a little more from him there. Fine. But he also, like, wasn't in position to make a difference on the play anyway. So I don't I, – I, I honestly just think I was watching a different game than everyone else. Or everyone else is far more – dialed in on Bo Horvat's circumstances than they are in, on his actual performance. I, I'd suggest that's what's going on. It uh, it does feel like... Sorry, Jess from New West. I still appreciate the text. Oh, always. Of course. Uh, it does feel like until he scores, there's going to be this conversation, right? And it's, uh, We talked about Which this, is, again, right? completely not fair. But it's always going to come back to it. You know what I mean? You Whether he's playing gonna, well or he's playing poorly, you know he's going to score a lot of goals this season? Bo Horvat. Don't worry about it. Uh, Marks and Gibsons, I'll leave us on this one. He says, Finn versus Gritty is what he wants to see. Uh, that'll do it for us today. We will be back on Monday. Enjoy the game tomorrow. Enjoy your weekend. The PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich is up next.